Section 11 of Love Letters of Dorothy Osborne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Love Letters of Dorothy Osborne. Section 11. Letter 51. Sir, the lady was in the right. You are a very pretty gentleman and a modest. Were there ever such stories as these you tell? The best on it is, I believe none of them, unless it be that of my Lady Newport, which I must confess is so like her, that if it be not true, t'was at least excellently well fancied. But my Lord Rich was not caught, though he was near it. My Lady Devonshire, whose daughter his first wife was, has engaged my Lord Warwick to put a stop to the business. Otherwise, I think his present want of fortune, and the little sense of honour he has, might have been prevailed on to marry her. "'Tis strange to see the folly that possesses the young people of this age, and the liberty they take to themselves. I have the charity to believe they appear very much worse than they are, and that the want of a court to govern themselves by is in great part the cause of their ruin. Though that was no perfect school of virtue, yet Vice there wore her mask, and appeared so unlike herself that she gave no scandal. Such as were really discreet, as they seemed to be, gave good example.' and the eminency of their condition made others strive to imitate them, or at least they durst not own a contrary cause. All who had good principles and inclinations were encouraged in them, and such as had neither were forced to put on a handsome disguise that they might not be out of countenance at themselves. Tis certain, what you say, that where divine or human laws are not positive, we may be our own judges. Nobody can hinder us nor is it in itself to be blamed. But, sure, it is not safe to take all liberty that is allowed us. There are not many that are sober enough to be trusted with the government of themselves, and because others judge us with more severity than our indulgence to ourselves will permit, it must necessarily follow that tis safer being ruled by their opinions than by our own. I am disputing again, though you told me my fault so plainly. I'll give it over, and tell you that Parthenissa is now my company. My brother sent it down, and I have almost read it. Tis handsome language. You would know it to be writ by a person of good quality, though you were not told it. But, on the whole, I am not very much taken with it. All the stories have too near a resemblance with those of other romances. There is nothing new or supranent in them. The ladies are all so kind they make no sport, and I meet only with one that took me by doing a handsome thing of the kind. She was in a besieged town, and persuaded all those of her sex to go out with her to the enemy, which were a barbarous people, and die by their swords, that the provisions of the town might last the longer for such as were able to do service in defending it. But how angry was I to see him spoil this again by bringing out a letter this woman left behind her for the governor of the town, where she discovers a passion for him, and makes that the reason why she did it. I confess I have no patience for our faiseuse de romance when they make a woman court. It will never enter into my head that tis possible any woman can love where she is not first loved, and much less that if they should do that, they could have the face to own it. Methinks he that writes l'illustre bassa says well in his epistle that we are not to imagine his hero to be less taking than those of other romances, because the ladies do not fall in love with him whether he will or not. T'would be an injury to the ladies to suppose they could do so, 
and the greater to his hero's civility if he should put him upon being cruel to them since he was to love but one another fault i find too in the style tis affected ambitioned is a great word with him and ignore my concern or of great concern is it seems properer than concernment and though he makes his people say fine handsome things to one another yet they are not easy and naive like the french and there is a little harshness in most of the discourse that one would take to be the fault of a translator rather than of an author but perhaps i like it the worse for having a piece of cyrus by me that i am hugely pleased with and that i would fain have you read i'll send it you at least read one story that i'll mark you down if you have time for no more i'm glad you stay to wait on your sister i would have my galant civil to all much more when it is so due and kindness too i have the cabinet and tis in earnest a pretty one though you will not own it for a present i'll keep it as one and is like to be yours no more but as tis mine i'll warrant you would never have thought of making me a present of charcoal as my servant james would have done to warm my heart i think he meant it but the truth is i had been inquiring for some as tis a commodity scarce enough in this country and he hearing it told the bailey he would give him some if it were for me but this is not all i cannot forbear telling you the other day he made me a visit and i to prevent his making discourse to me made mrs goldsmith and jane sit by all the while but he came better provided than i could have imagined he brought a letter with him and gave it me as one he had met with directed to me he thought it came out of northamptonshire i was upon my guard and suspecting all he said examined him so strictly where he had it before i would open it that he was hugely confounded and i confirmed that it was his i laid it by and wished that they would have left us that i might have taken notice on it to him but i had forbidden them so strictly before that they offered not to stir farther and to look out of window as not thinking there was any necessity of giving us their eyes as well as their ears but he that saw himself discovered took that time to confess to me in a whispering voice that i could hardly hear myself that the letter as my lord brogel says was of great concern to him and begged i would read it and give him my answer i took it up presently as if i had meant it but threw it sealed as it was into the fire and told him as softly as he had spoke to me i thought that the quickest and best way of answering it he sat a while in great disorder without speaking a word and so risen took his leave now what think you shall i ever hear of him more you do not thank me for using your rival so scurvily nor are not jealous of him though your father thinks my intentions were not handsome towards you which methinks is another argument that one is not to be one's own judge for i am very confident they were and with his favour shall never believe otherwise i am sure i have no ends to serve of my own in what i did it could be no advantage to me that it firmly resolved not to marry but i thought it might be an injury to you to keep you in expectation of what was never likely to be as i apprehended why do i enter into this wrangling discourse let your father think me what he pleases if he ever comes to know me the rest of my actions shall justify me in this if he does not i'll begin to practise on him what you so often preached to me to neglect the report of the world and satisfy myself in my own innocency twill be pleasinger to you i am sure to tell you how fond i am of your luck well in earnest now and setting aside all compliments i never saw finer hair nor of a better colour 
but cut no more on it. I would not have it spoiled for the world. If you love me, be careful on it. I am combing and curling and kissing this lock all day, and dreaming on it all night. The ring, too, is very well, only a little of the biggest. Send me a tortoise one that is a little less than that I sent for a pattern. I would not have the rule so absolutely true without exception that hard hairs be ill-natured, for then I should be so. But I can allow that all soft hairs are good, and so are you, or I am deceived as much as you are if you think I do not love you enough. Tell me, my dearest, am I? You will not be if you think I am your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 52 Sir, they say you gave order for this waste-paper. How do you think I could ever fill it, or with what? I am not always in the humour to wrangle and dispute. For example, now I would rather agree to what you say than tell you that Dr. Taylor, whose devote you must know I am, says there is a great advantage to be gained in resigning up one's will to the command of another, because the same action, which in itself is wholly indifferent if done upon our own choice, becomes an act of duty and religion if done in obedience to the command of any person whom nature, the laws, or ourselves have given a power over us, so that, though in an action already done we can only be our own judges, because we only know with what intentions it was done, yet in any we intend tis safest sure to take the advice of another. Let me practice this towards you, as well as preach it to you, and I'll lay a wager you'll approve on it but i am chiefly of your opinion that contentment which the spanish proverb says is the best paint gives the lustre to all one's enjoyment puts a beauty upon things which without it would have none increases it extremely where it is already in some degree and without it all that we call happiness besides loses its property what is contentment must be left to every particular person to judge for themselves since they only know what is so to them which differs in all according to their several humours. Only you and I agree tis to be found by us in a true friend, a moderate fortune, and a retired life. The last, I thank God, I have in perfection. My cell is almost finished, and when you come back you'll find me in it, and bring me both the rest, I hope. I find it much easier to talk of your coming back than your going. You shall never persuade me I sent you this journey. No, pray let it be your father's commands, or a necessity your fortune puts upon you. T'was unkindly said to tell me I banish you. Your heart never told it you, I dare swear, nor mine never thought it. No, my dear, this is our last misfortune. Let's bear it nobly. Nothing shows we deserve a punishment so much as our murmuring at it, and the way to lessen those we feel and escape those we fear is to suffer patiently what is imposed, making a virtue of necessity. "'Tis not that I have less kindness or more courage than you, but that mistrusting myself more, as I have more reason, I have armed myself all that is possible against this occasion. I have thought that there is not much difference between your being at Dublin or at London, as our affairs stand. You can write and hear from the first, and I should not see you sooner if you continued still at the last. Besides, I hope this journey will be of advantage to us.' When your father pressed your coming over, he told you you needed not doubt either his power or his will. Have I done anything since that deserves he should alter his intentions towards us? Or has any accident lessened his power? If neither, we may hope to be happy, 
and the sooner for this journey. I dare not send my boy to meet you at Brickhill, nor any other of the servants. They are all too talkative. But I can get Mr. Gibson, if you will, to bring you a letter. Tis a civil, well-natured man as can be, of excellent principles and exact honesty. I durst make him my confessor, though he is not obliged by his orders to conceal anything that is told him. But you must tell me, then, which Brickhill it is you stop at, little or great. They are neither of them far from us. If you stay there, you will write back by him, will you not? A long letter? I shall need it. Besides that, you owe it me for the last being so short. Would you saw what letters my brother writes me? You are not half so kind. Well, he is always in the extremes. Since our last quarrel, he has courted me more than ever he did in his life, and made me more presents, which, considering his humour, is as great a testimony of his kindness as twas of Mr. Smith to my Lady Sunderland when he presented Mrs. Camilla. He sent me one this week, which, in earnest, is as pretty a thing as I have seen, a china trunk, and the finest the kind that ever I saw. By the way, this puts me in mind on it, have you read the story of China written by a Portuguese, Fernando Mendes Pinto, I think his name is? If you have not, take it with you. Tis as diverting a book of the kind as ever I read, and is as handsomely written. You must allow him the privilege of a traveller, and he does not abuse it. His lies are as pleasant, harmless ones as lies can be, and in no great number, considering the scope he has for them. There is one in Dublin now, that never saw much farther, has told me twice as many, I dare swear, of Ireland. If I should ever live to see that country, and be in it, I should make excellent sport with them. This is a sister of my Lady Grey's, her name is Pooley, her husband lives there too, but I am afraid in no very good condition. They were but poor, and she lived here with her sisters when I knew her. Tis not half a year since she went, I think. If you hear of her, send me word how she makes a shift there. And hark you, can you tell me whether the gentleman that lost the crystal box the first of February in St. James's Park or Old Spring Gardens has found it again or not? I have strong curiosity to know. Tell me, and I'll tell you something that you don't know, which is that I am your valentine and you are mine. I did not think of drawing any, but Mrs. Goldsmith and Jane would need make me some for them and myself. So I writ down our three names, and for men, Mr. Fish, James B., and you. I cut them all equal, and made them up myself before them, and because I would owe it wholly to my good fortune if I were pleased, I made both them choose first that had never seen what was in them, and they left me you. Then I made them choose again for theirs, and my name was left. You cannot imagine how I was delighted with this little accident, but by taking notice that I cannot forbear telling you it. I was not half so pleased with my encounter next morning. I was up early, but with no design of getting another valentine, and going out to walk in my night-cloak and nightgown, I met Mr. Fish going a-hunting, I think he was, but he stayed to tell me I was his valentine, and I should not have been rid on him quickly if he had not thought himself a little too negligé. His hair was not powdered, and his clothes were but ordinary. To say truth, he looked then, methought, like other mortal people. Yet he was as handsome as your valentine. I'll swear you wanted one when you took her, and had very ill fortune that nobody met you before her. Oh, if I had not terrified my little gentleman when he brought me his own letter, now sure I had had him for my valentine. On my conscience, I shall follow your counsel if ever he comes again, but I am persuaded he will not. I writ my brother that story for want of something else, and he says I did very well. There was no other way to be writ on him, 
and he makes a remark upon it that I can be severe enough when I please, and wishes I would practice it somewhere else as well as there. Can you tell where that is? I never understand anybody that does not speak plain English, and he never uses that to me of late, but tells me the finest stories. I may apply them how I please, of people that have married when they thought there was great kindness, and how miserably they have found themselves deceived, how despicable they have made themselves by it, and how sadly they have repented on it. He reckons more inconveniency than you do that follows good nature, says it makes one credulous, apt to be abused, betrays one to the cunning of people that make advantage on it, and a thousand such things which I hear half asleep and half awake, and take little notice of, unless it be sometimes to say that with all these faults I would not be without it. No, in earnest, nor I could not love any person that I thought had it not to a good degree. T'was the first thing I liked in you, and without it I should never have liked anything. I know tis counted simple, but I cannot imagine why. Tis true some people have it that have not wit, but there are at least as many foolish people I have ever observed to be foolish of tricks, little ugly plots and designs, unnecessary disguises and mean cunnings, which are the basest qualities in the world, and makes one the most contemptible, I think. When I once discover them, they lose their credit with me for ever. Some will say they are cunning only in their own defence, and that there is no living in this world without it, but I cannot understand how anything more is necessary to one's own safety besides a prudent caution. That, I now think, is, though I can remember when nobody could have persuaded me that anybody meant ill when it did not appear by their words and actions. I remember my mother, who, if it may be allowed me to say it, was counted as wise a woman as most in England, when she seemed to distrust anybody, and so I took notice on it, would ask if I did not think her too jealous and a little ill-natured. "'Come, I know you do,' says she, "'if you would confess it, and I cannot blame you. When I was young as you are, I thought my father-in-law, who was a wise man, the most unreasonably suspicious man that ever was, and disliked him for it hugely. But I have lived to see it is almost impossible to think people worse than they are, and so will you.' I did not believe her, unless that I should have more to say to you than this paper would hold. It shall never be said I began another at this time of night, though I have spent this idly, that should have told you, with a little more circumstance, how perfectly I am your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 53 Sir, tis well you have given over your reproaches. I can allow you to tell me of my faults kindly and like a friend, Possibly tis a weakness in me to aim at the world's esteem, as if I could not be happy without it, but there are certain things that custom has made almost of absolute necessity, and the reputation I take to be one of these. If one could be invisible, I should choose that, but since all people are seen or known, and shall be talked of in spite of their teeth, who is it that does not desire, at least, that nothing of ill may be said of them, whether justly or otherwise? I never knew any so satisfied with their own innocence as to be content that the world should think them guilty. Some, out of pride, have seemed to contemn ill reports when they have found they could not avoid them, but none out of strength of reason, though many have pretended to it. No, not my Lady Newcastle, with all her philosophy. Therefore you must not expect it from me. I shall never be ashamed to own that I have a particular value for you above any other but tis not the greatest merit of person will excuse a want of fortune. 
in some degree i think it will at least with the most rational part of the world and as far as that will read i desire it should i would not have the world believe i married out of interest and to please my friends i had much rather they should know i chose the person and took his fortune because it was necessary and that i prefer a competency with one i esteem infinitely before a vast estate in other hands tis much easier sure to get a good fortune than a good husband but whosoever marries without any consideration of fortune shall never be allowed to do it but of so reasonable an apprehension the whole world without any reserve shall pronounce they did it merely to satisfy their giddy humour besides though you imagine twere a great argument of my kindness to consider nothing but you in earnest i believed it would be an injury to you i do not see that it puts any value upon men when women marry them for love as they term it tis not their merit but our folly that is always presumed to cause it and would it be any advantage to you to have your wife thought to be an indiscreet person all this i can say to you but when my brother disputes it with me i have other arguments for him and i drove him up so close the other night that for want of a better gap to get out at he was fain to say that he feared as much your having a fortune as your having none for he saw you held my lord lieutenant's principles that religion and honour were things you did not consider at all and that he was confident you would take any engagement serve an employment or do anything to advance yourself i had no patience for this to say you were a beggar your father not worth four thousand pounds in the whole world was nothing in comparison of having no religion nor no honour i forgot all my disguise and we talked ourselves wary he renounced me and i defied him but both in a civil language as it would permit and parted in great anger with the usual ceremony of a leg and a curtsy that he would have died with laughing to have seen us the next day i not being at dinner saw him not till night then he came into my chamber where i supped but he did not afterwards mr gibson and he and i talked of indifferent things till all but we two went to bed then he sat half an hour and said not one word nor i to him at last in a pitiful tone sister says he i have heard you say that when anything troubles you of all things you apprehend going to bed because there it increases upon you and you lie at the mercy of all your sad thought which the silence and darkness of the night adds a horror to i am at that pass now i vowed to god i would not endure another night like the last to gain a crown i who resolved to take no notice what ailed him said twas a knowledge i had raised from my spleen only and so fell into a discourse of melancholy and the causes and from that i know not how into religion and we talked so long of it and so devoutly that it laid all our anger we grew to a calm and peace with all the world two hermits conversing in a cell they equally inhabit never expressed more humble charitable kindness one towards another than we he asked my pardon and i his and he has promised me never to speak of it to me whilst he lives but leave the event to god almighty until he sees it done he will always be the same to me that he is then he shall leave me he says not out of want of kindness to me but because he cannot see the ruin of a person that he loves so passionately and in whose happiness he has laid up all his these are the terms we are at and i am confident he will keep his word with me so that you have no reason to fear him in any respect for though he should break his promise he should never make me break mine no let me assure you this rival nor any other shall ever alter me 
therefore spare your jealousy, or turn it all into kindness. I will write every week, and no miss of letters shall give us any doubts of one another. Time nor accidents shall not prevail upon our hearts, and, if God Almighty please to bless us, we will meet the same we are, or happier. I will do all you bid me. I will pray, and wish, and hope, but you must do so too, then, and be so careful of yourself that I may have nothing to reproach you with when you come back. That vile wench lets you see all my scribbles, I believe. How do you know I took care your hair should not be spoiled? Tis more than e'er you did, I think. You are so negligent on it, and keep it so ill, tis pity you should have it. May you have better luck in the cutting it than I had with mine. I cut it two or three years agone, and it never grew since. Look to it. If I keep the lock you give me better than you do all the rest, I shall not spare you. Expect to be soundly chidden. What do you mean to do with all my letters? Leave them behind you? If you do, it must be in safe hands. Some of them concern you and me and other people besides us very much, and they will almost load a horse to carry. Does not my cousin at Moor Park distrust us a little? I have a great belief they do. I am sure Robin C. told my brother of it since I was last in town. Of all things, I admire my cousin Molly has not got it by the end. He that frequents that family so much and is at this instant at Kimbleton. If he has, and conceals it, he is very discreet. I could never discern by anything that he knew it. I shall endeavour to accustom myself to the noise on it, and make it as easy to me as I can, though I had much rather it were not talked of till there were an absolute necessity of discovering it, and you can oblige me in nothing more than in concealing it. I take it very kindly that you promise to use all your interest in your father to persuade him to endeavour our happiness and he appears so confident of his power that it gives me great hopes. Dear, shall we ever be so happy, think you? Ah, I dare not hope it. Yet tis not want of love gives me these fears. No, in earnest, I think, nay, I am sure, I love you more than ever, and tis that only gives me these despairing thoughts. When I consider how small a proportion of happiness is allowed in this world— and how great mine would be in a person for whom I have a passionate kindness, and who has the same for me. As it is infinitely above what I can deserve, and more than God Almighty usually allots to the best people, I can find nothing in reason but seems to be against me, and, methinks, tis as vain in me to expect it as t'would be to hope I might be a queen, if that were really as desirable a thing as tis thought to be, and it is just it should be so." We complain of this world, and the variety of crosses and afflictions it abounds in, and yet for all this who is wary on it, more than in this cause? Who thinks with pleasure of leaving it, or preparing for the next? We see old folks, who have outlived all the comforts of life, desire to continue in it, and nothing can wean us from the folly of preferring a mortal being, subject to great infirmity and unavoidable decays, before an immortal one and all the glories that are promised with it. Is this not very like preaching? Well, tis too good for you. You shall have no more on it. I am afraid you are not mortified enough for such discourse to work upon, though I am not of my brother's opinion, neither, that you have no religion in you. In earnest, I never took anything he ever said half so ill, as nothing, sure, is so great an injury. It must suppose one to be a devil in human shape. Oh, me! Now I am speaking of religion, let me ask you, is not his name Bagshaw that you say rails on love and women, 
because I heard one the other day speaking of him and commending his wit, but withal said he was a perfect atheist. If so, I can allow him to hate us, and love, which sure has something of a divine in it, since God requires it of us. I am coming into my preaching vein again. What think you, were it not a good way of preferment as the times are? If you'll advise me to it, I'll venture. The woman at Somerset House was cried up mightily. Think on it. Dear, I am your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 54 For your master, seal with coat of arms, when your mistress pleases. Sir, you bid me write every week, and I am doing it without considering how it will come to you. Let Nan look to that, with whom, I suppose, you have left the orders of conveyance. I have your last letter, but Jane, to whom you refer me, is not yet come down. On Tuesday I expect her, and if she be not engaged, I shall give her no cause hereafter to believe that she is a burden to me, though I have no employment for her but that of talking to me when I am in the humour of saying nothing. Your dog is come too, and I have received him with all the kindness that is due to anything you send. I have defended him from the envy and malice of a troop of greyhounds that used to be in favour with me, and he is so sensible of my care over him that he is pleased with nobody else, and follows me as if we had been of long acquaintance. Tis well, you are gone past my recovery. My heart has failed me twenty times since you went, and, had you been within my call, I had brought you back as often, though I know thirty miles distance and three hundred are the same thing. You'll be so kind, I am sure, as to ride back by the coach, and tell me what the success of your journey so far has been. After that, I expect no more, unless you stay for a wind, till you arrive at Dublin. I pity your sister in earnest. A sea voyage is welcome to no lady. But you are beaten to it, and will become you, now you are a conductor, to show your valour and keep your company in heart. When do you think of coming back again? I am asking that before you are at your journey's end. You will not take it ill that I desire it should be soon. In the meantime, I'll practice all the rules you gave me. Who told you I go to bed late? In earnest, they do me wrong. I have been faulty in that point heretofore, I confess, but it is a good while since I gave it over with my reading o' nights. But in the daytime I cannot live without it, and is all my diversion, and infinitely more pleasing to me than any company but yours. And yet I am not given to it in any excess now. I have been very much more. Tis Jane, I know, tells all these tales of me. I shall be even with her some time or other but for the present I long for her with some impatience, that she may tell me all you have told her. Never trust me if I had not a suspicion from the first that was that ill-looked fellow B who made that story Mr. D. told you. That which gave me the first inclination to that belief was the circumstance you told me of their seeing me at St. Gregory's, for I remembered to have seen B. there, and had occasion to look up into the gallery where he sat to answer a very civil salute given me from thence by Mr. Freeman and saw B in a great whisper with another that sat next him, and pointing to me. If Mr. D. had not been so nice in discovering his name, you would quickly have been cured of your jealousy. Never believe I have a servant that I do not tell you of as soon as I know it myself. As, for example, my brother Peyton has sent to me, for a countryman of his, Sir John Tufton. He married one of my Lady Wotton's heirs, who is lately dead, and to invite me to think of it. Besides his person and his fortune, without exception, he tells me what an excellent husband he was to this lady that is dead, who was but a crooked, ill-favoured woman, only she brought him fifteen hundred pounds a year. I tell him I believe Sir John Tufton could be content, 
I were so too upon the same terms. But his loving his first wife can be no argument to persuade me. For, if he had loved her as he ought to do, I cannot hope he should love another so well as I expect anybody should that has me. And if he did not love her, I have less to expect he should me. I do not care for a divided heart. I must have all or none, at least the first place in it. Poor James, I have broke his. He says twould pity you to hear what sad complaints he makes, and, but that he has not the heart to hang himself, he would be very well contented to be out of the world. That house of your cousin R. is fatal to physicians. Dr. Smith that took it is dead already, but maybe this was before you went, and so is no news to you. I shall be sending you all I hear, which, though it cannot be much, living as I do, yet it may be more than ventures into Ireland. I would have you diverted, whilst you are there, as much as possible, but not enough to tempt you to stay one minute longer than your father and your business obliges you. Alas, I have already repented all my share in your journey, and begin to find I am not half so valiant as I sometimes take myself to be. The knowledge that our interests are the same, and that I shall be happy or unfortunate in your person as much or more than in my own, does not give me that confidence you speak of. It rather increases my doubts, and I durst trust your fortune alone rather than now that mine is joined with it. Yet I will hope yours may be so good as to overcome the ill of mine, and shall endeavour to mend my own all I can by striving to deserve it may be better. My dearest, will you pardon me that I am forced to leave you so soon? The next shall be longer, though I can never be more than I am your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 55, March the 18th, 1654 How true it is that the misfortune never comes single! We live in expectation of some one happiness that we propose to ourselves, an age almost, and perhaps miss it at the last. But sad accidents have wings to overtake us, and come in flocks like ill-boding ravens. You were no sooner gone, but, as if that had not been enough, I lost the best father in the world. And though, as to himself, it was an infinite mercy in God Almighty to take him out of a world that can be pleasing to none, and was made more uneasy to him by many infirmities that were upon him, yet to me it is an affliction much greater than people judge it. Besides all that is due to nature and the memory of many, more than ordinary kindnesses, received from him, besides what he was to all that knew him, and what he was to me in particular, I am left by his death in the condition, which of all others, is the most unsupportable to my nature, to depend upon kindred that are not friends, and that, though I pay as much as I should do to a stranger, yet think they do me a curtsy. I expect my eldest brother to-day. If he comes, I shall be able to tell you before I seal this up where you are likely to find me. If he offers me to stay here, this hole will be more agreeable to my humour than any place that is more in the world. I take it kindly that he used art to conceal our story and satisfy my nice apprehensions. But I'll not impose that constraint upon you any longer, for I find my kind brother publishes it with more earnestness than ever I strove to conceal it, and with more disadvantage than anybody else would. Now he has tried always to do what he desires and finds it is in vain, he resolves to revenge himself upon me by representing this action in such colours as will amaze all people that know me, and do not know him enough to discern his malice to me. 
he is not able to forbear showing it now when my condition deserves pity from all the world i think and that he himself has newly lost a father as well as i but takes this time to torment me which appears at least to me so barbarous a cruelty that though i thank god i have charity enough perfectly to forgive all the injury he can do me yet i am afraid i shall never look upon him as a brother more and now do you judge whether i am not very unhappy and whether that sadness in my face you used to complain of was not suited to my fortune you must confess it and that my kindness for you is beyond example all these troubles are persecutions that make me weary of the world before my time and lessen the concernment i have for you and instead of being persuaded as they would have me by their malicious stories methinks i am obliged to love you more in recompense of all the injuries they have done you upon my score i shall need nothing but my own heart to fortify me in this resolution and desire nothing in return of it but that your care of yourself may answer to that which i shall always have for your interests i received your letter of the tenth of this month and i hope this will find you at your journey's end in earnest i have pitied your sister extremely and can easily apprehend how troublesome this voyage must needs be to her by knowing what others have been to me yet pray assure her i would not scruple at undertaking it myself to gain such an acquaintance and would go much farther than where i hope she now is to serve her i am afraid she will not think me a fit person to choose for a friend that cannot agree with my own brother but i must trust you to tell my story for me and will hope for a better character from you than he gives me who lest i should complain resolves to prevent me and possess my friends first that he is the injured party i never magnified my patience to you but i begin to have a good opinion on it since this trial yet perhaps i have no reason and it may be as well a want of sense in me as of passion however you will not be displeased to know that i can endure all that he or anybody else can say and that setting aside my father's death and your absence i make nothing an affliction to me though i am sorry i confess to see myself forced to keep such distances with one of his relations because religion and nature and the custom of the world teaches otherwise i see i shall not be able to satisfy you in this how i shall dispose of myself for my brother is not come the next will certainly tell you in the meantime i expect with great impatience to hear of your safe arrival twas a disappointment that you missed those fair winds i pleased myself extremely with the belief that they had made your journey rather a diversion than a trouble either to you or your company but i hope your passage was as happy if not as sudden as you expected it let me hear often from you and long letters i do not count this so have no apprehensions for me but all the care of yourself that you please my melancholy has no anger in it and i believe the accidents of my life would work more upon any other than they do upon me whose humour is always more prepared for them than that of gayer persons i hear nothing that is worth your knowing when i do you shall know it tell me if there is anything i can do for you and assure yourself i am perfectly your faithful friend and servant dorothy osborne End of section 11